You've clicked on Behind the Buzz, a public fit theater company's bi-weekly podcast scrutinizing the myriad details that made up the production of some of our most popular past shows. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF, joined by artistic director Anne-Marie Pereth, and we've spent the last three episodes talking about our 2017 production of Margaret Edson's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Wit. Well, we're very excited to spend this fourth episode talking with the playwright herself. Margaret Edson joined us for an intimate conversation about her life, the play, and the importance of smoothing the way for other people. Fair warning, we recorded this conversation over Zoom, so some of the audio quality may be a little rough. So let's get to it. Here's episode four, our conversation with Margaret Edson. Margaret Edson is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Wit. Born in Washington, D.C., Edson graduated from Sidwell Friends School, a privately run Quaker school in Washington, where she first became active in theater. After earning a degree in Renaissance history from Smith College in 1983, Edson moved to Iowa City, Iowa, where she attended bar at night and sold hot dogs during the day. Unsatisfied with the hot dog game, Edson decided to pursue a master's in literature, returning to her hometown in Washington, D.C., but was first driven to write one play. The first draft of Wit was written over the summer of 1991. Currently, Margaret Edson teaches sixth grade social studies in Atlanta, Georgia, where she lives with her wife, Linda, and her two sons, Pete and Tim. She has graciously asked us to call her Maggie which I will do with the greatest respect and sincere admiration and truly overwhelming gratitude. Maggie Edson, thank you so much for joining us. Can we can we start with one of the things that I left out of this biography was that actually in, in 1985, you, you spent some time working as a hospital clerk. I can only imagine that that helped uh, inform wit in some way. It did. I, I had no thought to write wit when I was there. I was just doing the job to do it. Um, but then five years later, when I started thinking about wit, that became part of it. Um, that was one of the things I've done in my life that I love the most. I, my whole purpose was to make things go more smoothly for other people. And that's a great way to live, um, to, to notice things and to um, act on my observations and, and just try to smooth things out both for the staff and for the patients and their families. Um, so to have no agenda of my own, to only be thinking of how I can be useful in each situation that arose during the day. That was a great way to live. I love doing that. And that's, that's, that sounds like it still sort of inspires your, your day-to-day <laughs> modus operandi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you were um, acting as this hospital clerk, was there a particular person uh, in, in the hospital that was the inspiration for Vivian Baring? Well, just to be clear, I was not acting as a hospital clerk. I was. <laughs> I know you theater people. You theater people see a performance in everything, but in fact, I'm. I act like a mother. <laughs> but I, I was not acting like a hospital clerk. Um, the there wasn't one patient in particular or one caregiver in particular because. A big part of my job also was noticing how the day was going for caregivers and thinking, well, if we can get the supply cart up here two hours earlier, then we'll have everything we need for the afternoon transition and that kind of thing. So um, not having actual skills was the secret of my success because each situation that arose, I was powerless to have an impact on, but I could observe it very closely and I could, I could bring everything I had in me, my, my observations, my insights to each little tiny situation. Um, so the patients are only aware of the caregivers and the caregivers are only aware of the patients. And since I was neither, I could see both very clearly. So I could see the whole exchange happening. Did you ever, you know, with, with this with this impetus to want to help people and make people's lives easier, did it ever cross your mind to, to go into the medical profession? Uh, no. Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. It, it seemed, you know, we, we, when we produced WIT, 
Um, you know, each of, after every one of our performances, some, you know, some companies have a, a talk back on a Sunday matinee. We do one after every single performance, after everything we do, we call it the buzz. And a, a number of our buzzes, it was remarkable how many doctors and medical professionals in the audience believed that your play was about them. Doctors seem to think that wit is a play about doctors. Why do you think that is? Um, because all the TV shows are about them. <laughs> of course, of course, that makes absolute perfect sense. The when the when the play first came out, it was seen as a sort of scolding or an indictment of of doctors. Um, but the doctors in the play are not guilty of anything that Professor Baring is also not guilty of. Right? The play is about arrogance, not about doctors. Right? But if doctors think they're the only people who are arrogant, that's very arrogant. <laughs> they're, they're hoisted on their own petard. You're absolutely... Um, and the English professors are not at all affronted. They are delirious with joy because there's a play in which people talk about punctuation. True. true. They, yeah, they must be over the moon with an entire monologue based upon a semicolon. Um, you know, it, it's when, when, the, when the play was originally... Written, I, I did a little bit of research and saw some of your interviews during that time. You were all over the place. And you said something that, that struck me, and I, I wrote it down. And I'm wondering if this is still true for you. You said, I understand people's rejection of it more than I understand their acceptance of it. In a previous conversation that we've had, you talked about you, you see the play, you know, two or three times a year just in, in you know, in its continued production and around the country. Do you still feel that way? Do you still feel that the, that the audience, their rejection of it is somehow more understandable than their acceptance of it? I'm astonished every day by the life that Wit has had beyond its writing. Every, every day. That's surprising to me. It's used in AP English classes, in graduate ethics seminars. Um, it's used in medical education all the time. The film is used in, in teaching in all healthcare professions, chaplaincy training programs. My neighbor down the street was in med school and he said, oh, we read your plays. Oh, it's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's the life that it continues to have is as a tool that opens up other conversations. And that is very significant for me. Well, we found that we, we uh, made a very, um, concerted effort to connect to the, I don't like this term, I don't know what other term to use, the cancer community uh, in, in Las Vegas. And, you know, I guess that's fair. Barbara Caldwell, who was the nurse practitioner who helped uh, do all of the, um, the, you know, the medical advising on the play, uh, says cancer community. So I guess I'm allowed to say that. But we, we had uh, a, a connection there, not just with her, but a lot of the patients um, that suffered from the similar. Yeah, I had a really unique experience actually with your play because in the past, you know, Joe and I, we would direct plays and, you know, I'd have a difficult moment in rehearsal and I'd say to the actor, you know, well, it's not cancer, you know, you know, let's just try and explore this moment because, you know, let's not like overthink it because it's not cancer. But in this case, it was cancer. <laughs> so uh, I decided to reach out to the cancer community and we met uh, this wonderful uh, nurse practitioner who introduced me to um, some patients and who introduced me actually to a particular patient who has since passed. So the play really taught me as an individual uh, that we have to explore other communities and not just be so isolated in the theater community and think that everything that we're doing is just so important that there are other communities that we have to be empathetic to and really try and understand in, in, in a more complex way. So I was just wondering, and I'm sure this has happened, you know, many people with cancer have seen your play. And uh, I was just wondering if there's been any memorable expressions uh, from your interchange with some of these uh, lovely people that have stood out to you? Um, one person said, um, a, a woman said, I want people to see it because this is what it's like. But this is, so it, it was useful to her to help explain to her family what her experience was like. Um, a very interesting experience was that of a, an actress who was playing Professor Baring, and while she was in rehearsal, she was diagnosed with cancer. Holy and cow. so she oh, no. went to her first appointment with the oncologist, but her head was already shaved. 
And he said, well, how has that happened? <laughs> um, so she went on then to create a one-woman show about her experience of cancer, um, which I saw and was very interested in. So um, a lot of different um, points of connection with different kinds of people. That's remarkable. Well, we, you know, we all, we often say that the audience is the, is, you know, the, the last character in the play and that they, they <laughs> will change the dynamic of the play from any particular time. Does that, have you felt any audiences uh, that stood out to you? That's a ridiculous question. I rescind the question. I, I will ask the question. Please do a better job. <laughs> okay. So uh, oftentimes I will say to the cast uh, that in our particular production, we had, six uh, orderly students, like six hospital workers and six students. And then we had five of the principals. And so then I often say, well, the, the 12th uh, actor is the audience, right? Right. It's, it's the 12th character. So um, from audience to audience, do you have a different experience because the audience is having a different experience? Sometimes audience connect to the humor. Sometimes they connect to the drama. Each performance is its own self. Um, so I'm not I'm not at a performance in July recalling a performance in March or anything like that. So I, I just get completely caught up in the performance in a way that's surprising to me. Um, but but that that always happens to me. So I'm always part of the audience. The the sort of myth of the fourth wall, the idea that the the play is going on in the stage, and there's the couch and the family and everybody's yelling at each other, and then the audience. 200 people are watching it, but we're all pretending that that's not so, right? right. We're, we're, we're going forward with the evening and the audience is pretending it's not there and the actors are pretending the audience is not there. So we can all join together in this pretense of, of not being together. Of separateness. Theater is dumb, I think is what you're saying. Well, it's interesting because then what happens in wit is that, that, that what's called the fourth wall, that illusion of audience-lessness is broken. And Professor Baring is speaking to the audience. And the theoretical idea from Brecht, of course, is that when the character stops being emotionally involved in the scene, and speaks directly to the audience, that keeps the audience from being caught up in the feelings and galvanizes the audience for political action. So when you break the fourth wall, when you go beyond that, you're, you're creating a distance between the audience's emotional connection with the characters and the audience's life in the body politic. You, you want to create that distance. I feel when I see wit, that the opposite thing happens. That when Professor Baring breaks that fourth wall and speaks directly to the audience, rather than alienate the audience, the audience comes toward her more. And so over the course of the evening, there's no intermission. The audience, in spite of Professor Baring and her contempt for the audience, her rejection of the audience, and her wish to alienate the audience, the audience becomes more and more involved in her story so that by the end, they're the closest friends she's ever had in her life. And, and the audience wears that with great nobility. It's a, it's a sacrifice of an evening for the audience and, and a, a lot of human care. The audience, the audience works all through the play toward a goal that the audience can't see. And then when it comes, what a reward for all of us. Well, it's funny that you bring up, you know, Brecht and, and audience alienation. You, you set yourself up uh, as a playwright in direct opposition to your lead character. She does not care for you. Uh, Vivian Baring has great, I would say, almost contempt for for the, the play that she is involved in, knowing full well that if a play was written about her, she would want it done in, what does she say, the Baroque romantic style or some, some giant uh, um, extravaganza, spectacular. And I... I what what made you what made you set up that relationship between yourself and your your lead character? You're literally as the playwright in opposition to your to your lead character. Oh, she hates me, <laughs> and I can see why I put her in this play. This is not the play she would have chosen. So she's trapped in this corny melodramatic play. Maudlin is the word she uses, and um, it's written by a cheap hack, and. The audience is sitting there and she's she's just trapped. And the only way out for her is 
is into some kind of truth. I mean, we're all conspiring against her for sure. We're, we're ganging up on her. Um, and so she has to, um, other people, the, the thing that Professor Baring has to learn, she who knows all the answers and got all the good grades, is, is how to be broken, how to be human. And the rest of us, we're good at that, okay? It happens to us all day long. It happens to us all the time. And we know that we can survive it because we have one another, right? That's what humans do. It, it, bad stuff happens, and, and we get through it because we're connected to one another. And Professor Brain doesn't know that because she's always correct. She's perfect, and she gets an A in everything. So she doesn't need anybody. There's nothing that needs to be mended because there's nothing broken. How nice for her, right? But I'm not going to let her get away with that. Her vision for herself is that she lives this straight A life and she ends up dying of a heart attack in the stacks of the library, right? In that literature section where nobody goes, right? And, and her final thought is going to be, I made it. I made it through this life without having to risk being my true self. She says even, she says, um, I thought being extremely smart would take care of it. That begs a question for me though. Is, is, is grace then only necessary when we find ourselves under duress? Is, is there no, is there no avenue towards, um, is there no avenue towards receiving grace without torment? Without stress, without 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 hardship, for normal people, grace is abundantly manifest. But for Professor Baring, because of her unwillingness to notice it, I had to not only give her cancer; I had to give her metastatic cancer. I had to be ovarian cancer. I had, she has to be on a treatment, a research protocol. She has to be in a research hospital. She has to go through eight cycles. All those things have to come together to hit her over the head till she's ready. Maybe I'll just shift gears a little bit then. I want, I actually, that brings me to the notion that we didn't really talk about this earlier, but the, the subject of religion and her, her faith, I'm, I'm wondering if you can give me a little bit of insight into uh, Vivian's transition. I don't know where she, you know, I honestly, even having produced the play now and spent a lot of time with your work, I'm not quite a hundred percent sure where I stand on Vivian's position on on God and theism, and I, I think she feels the same fears that Dunn expresses in Poisonous Minerals, the notion of of the, the um, irrationality of damnation. Uh, but I don't know if she truly believes in in damnation. Can you speak a little bit about that? Is there a where does where does she sit in the in the scale of religious belief? She sits tall in the saddle. <laughs> she does. She has, she has the answers. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. She can't get an A in that. She doesn't need that. She, no, she doesn't. She's an expert in it. But being an expert in it and being in it in it are not the same thing as she finds out. So interesting. So she may be, she understands it intellectually, but by the end of the play, she understands it in a, in an intuitive and in a, in a, in a complete way. Yeah. It, it, she, she becomes her complete perfect self in the last 10 seconds of the play, which is plenty of time. She's got five seconds to spare. So she didn't, she didn't cut it close at all. Plenty of time. Yeah. Yeah. The tragedy would have been, if she had never had this experience, that would have been a tragedy. She became a human being before our eyes in 90 minutes with no intermission. How beautiful. How perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the goal is, I think, uh, is that we, we figure that out early on. Right. So that we can experience that through our life. <laughs> As opposed to feeling, yeah, feeling at the end. Yes. In the last, in the last, uh, Five seconds. Yeah, sweat, sweating all, all the sweating all the punctu punctuation. Um, there was another quote I would I wanted to ask you about if you don't if you don't mind um, that uh, I was looking at your 
commencement address to Smith College a number of years ago. And, and you said a line that that's, uh, really stood out to me that I didn't quite understand. Um, when you talked about students leaving you, uh, your comment was, and after that, I will have nothing, and that will be the proof of the meaning of my work. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the meaning of your work ending on being nothing? Well, that is a question that it's surprising to me that a theater person is asking me because that is the end product of theater also. Well, wait, can I stop you for a second? Maggie, do you not consider yourself a theater person? Well, if it's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so you've been throwing it around all this time at me with the derogatory. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, you've said that a couple times now. You said, well, you theater people, you theater people. And, and I wonder, do you consider yourself a theater person? Because you've certainly impacted the theater in a tremendous way. I, you know, I would bet like Mary, like Vivian, you would consider yourself a teacher above and beyond all else. Well, it certainly is what I have been doing for the last 29 years. Yeah, you're about to retire, huh? Uh, we'll see about that. Yeah. Well, so to get back to that quote, the 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 idea of of nothing being the the, um, the meaning of, of of your work. What am I missing? Not a thing. I mean, what what meaning there is from experiences that we have? I mean, what are we going to put the head of a moose on the wall that we shot? Is that are we going to have trophies? Are we going to have badges? Are we going to have um, be wearing chain mail or have, you know, shields, heraldic shields. How do we, what is the, the evidence of our humanness? Nothing. So the, the one who dies with the most toys wins is not in your lexicon. No. Yeah. You, you can't take it with you. It's more apt. Okay. Can we talk about your own religious experiences? Uh, Maggie, something about a Quaker school stands out in that, in that bio. Is that something that's, that's constant in your, in your life? these days not not a quicker particularly quicker vibe but um but i'm a christian yeah it just seems like the that you're saying you know your your goal in life is to make life easier for others that feels like a, that feels a very christian perspective not uniquely but uh, but centrally yes well yeah i would agree not uniquely but but well okay yeah can we talk about the uh, well, it was your question. You remember how you talked about uh, the scholar versus the teacher? Well, there's a moment in, in the in the play that I, we read plays very closely here. The words are very important. And as Mark Twain said, you know, the, the difference between the right word and almost the right word and all of that. But there's throughout the play, Vivian Baring discusses, she talks about herself as a lecturer and a professor and a, a professor, she says. And then there's a moment relatively late in the play where she finally has a very human moment with her her primary nurse Susie and she says I was a teacher and she uses that word for the first and I believe only time in the play and see that is a you're making a very clear distinction between what a teacher does and what a professor or a lecturer does can you talk about that a little bit and is that a fair is that a fair analysis of that moment yeah the moment is in fact the last lucid thing that she says Right, is she and yeah. Susie are having the pop? She's going on the morphine drip, and it will have a soporific effect, and so that that's that's the end of her lucid participation in the play. Um, she's probably surprised to hear herself say that. That that came. Um, we all have these set pieces, these things we say about ourselves, right? And her book was a success in paper as well as cloth, right? And that's one of yes. the things she says. Right. And so she has these set speeches that she says about herself. And that was not one of them. I think that came that just came out of her mouth. I think she would be surprised to hear herself say that. But do you feel a distinction just between those labels, between the, the label of being a teacher and being a scholar or being a professor? Is, is there a difference between in those in those definitions of those words? Not necessarily, but in Professor Barry's case, yes. Yeah. I, I wonder. I wonder if she really was a teacher then, um, or does it take that the level of humanity that she's finally reached to really be? Um, a, a, well, let me ask you this. Was she a good teacher? Jason thought so. That's true. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But he and she are exactly the same. They're, they're right. absolutely the same. 
So of course he would think so. Oftentimes, like when I talk to my class about the distinction between scholar and teacher, like even for me as as an instructor, I'm very intimidated by that word scholar. It's an intimidating word for me where uh, teacher, there is some warmth to it. There's a lot of warmth to teacher. So that's one of my favorite moments in the show uh, that she decides to take on that identity uh, because she's allowed herself to be warm and understanding with with Susie. And, and she's allowed herself to let go of the scholarly part just a little bit to let the teacher part shine through. Uh, and, and I think it's such a, a, a lovely and poignant uh, moment in the show. And, and so the, the reason why I'm bringing that up is I, I know that in your history, you were on track to become a scholar with all your education and you transitioned uh, to being a teacher. Can you, can you share a little bit of that experience about how that, how that happened? Yeah. It, the, the chronology is, is significant. I think um, I, I wrote it. I had a, applied to grad school. I was 30 and I had applied to grad school and I got in and I had a set amount of time and I was working in a bicycle shop also. So I would work on the play and work on the work at the bicycle shop. And then I finished the play and just sat on it. And then I started grad school right away. So um, it was completely done as far as I was concerned before I started this master's in English that I did. And then over the course of the year of my master's in English, I liked my graduate work less and less. And then at the same time, I was a volunteer tutor and I liked my volunteer tutoring more and more. And so at the end of that year, I decided instead of going on for a PhD that I would become an elementary school teacher. And so that's what I did. So the play was completely closed at that point. Um, but maybe instead of me writing it, maybe it wrote me. <laughs> yeah, this is just a little side note, but I often think of you being in grad school and having won the Pulitzer and then being your professor, I would be so intimidated if you were my... That's not what happened. No, 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 no. The play was in 91, right? Oh, okay. 1991. Okay. Then I sent it out in 92, and it was rejected by every theater in the country. Okay. And then it was finally produced in 95 by South Coast Repertory. Right. Right. And then even after that production, that was very successful for them. It was held over three times, great word of mouth, and they called the head of all the other regional theaters said this really worked for us and everybody said no so it was rejected all over again so then there were two more years of nothing why, why, do, you think that, why do you think that is i'm sorry to interrupt Maggie. Why, do you, why do you think it was in, was rejected i completely get why it was rejected it has nine actors which for a regional theater is too many right for community theater it's not enough but for regional theaters too many um there's a somebody described it to me <laughs> someone who likes it as 90 minutes of suffering and death mitigated by a pelvic exam and a lecture on 17th century poetry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's what it is, right? So then, so 97, so it was, nothing happened for two years, and then 97 was produced again, and then that production moved to a tiny, tiny theater in New York in the fall of 98, and then it won the Pulitzer Prize in the spring of 99. So there was a long time oh, in between man. writing it and the Pulitzer Prize. Long time. Yes. Thank you for that clarification, because I've always imagined you as the student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sitting on that thing, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Running around. <laughs> I'm still going to kind of like hold on to that. Like, that's like my own fantasy. Well, I have, I got another graduate, I got a teaching degree after, since then. Um, okay. But, but the whole Pulitzer thing, that was not part of it. Oh, okay. Uh, and you and you've been teaching all this time, and no, no desire or impetus to 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 write anymore. No, no, not not even a book, a novel, a story of your life. Because you know, hearing about the hot dog stand and the the hot dogs and the and the bicycle shop, this is this makes for some thrilling autobiography, I would think. The um, the bicycle shop was a very good way to balance working on the play because when working in a fictional world the characters are very present in your mind. They're, they are really always there. And especially once in a play, because they're talking all the time, right? And especially people like Professor Barry are just, yeah, 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 in my head all the time. So I was very 
preoccupied by it. And then I would hang out at the bike shop and that was just very fun. And then I, but I always had this simmering preoccupation going on. So those two things balanced each other very well. Can we uh, talk about um, bicycles? Yes, let's talk about bicycles. So one of our big discoveries in rehearsal, and, and, and we had talked about it in a previous discussion about the use of the semicolon in the beginning of the play. And then at the end of the play, when Vivian Baring chooses, do you want to kind of elaborate on that? Well, yeah, you, you, you make a point with, with Ashford to um, talk about hysterical punctuation. And then the, the point of, of Dunn's play, um, Death Be Not Proud, is in fact, it is just the comma that separates life from death. But when she faces that moment of separating herself, life from death, and she says that verse again, she goes out of her way to say semicolon, exclamation point. And I, I wonder if that exclamation point, um, what, what, what that says about the experience that she's gone through. What are you saying with that, with that moment of, of her demanding that the exclamation point actually be inserted in, in defiance of, of her, her tutor? She needs, she needs, she needs a lot, all the punctuation she can get she needs at this point, right? There's some moments where you just really don't need that much punctuation, but she really needs everything. She's mm -hmm. coming forward and speaking to the audience and she's apologizing because the play is not working out for her. And she thinks it's over and, and she's, she's grasping for something. She, she's trying to make either intellectual sense of this moment or dramatic sense of this moment, right? And, and the play says what she accuses John Donne of, she's guilty of, as am I, which is overweening intellect and overwrought dramatics, right? Those are the two, all calling on all the forces of intellect and drama. We see those phrases a couple of times during the play. Yeah. So as she is sort of giving her valedictory speech, she says, this is my grand farewell, right? She is is trying to generate some kind of energy for this moment, and she uses too much intellect and too much drama mm -hmm. in the form of too much punctuation, right? She's overreaching this moment. And so then she just lies down and she thinks it's over, and it's not. It's not. That's, a, that's so interesting because we have a version of what we thought that was, but it, what, it's nice to hear from the actual playwright what 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 your perspective was, because uh, I think our perspective was, is that her eight treatments of chemotherapy and, and the journey of her life, that it's been so challenging that that life, death and afterlife, it, it's not an easy transition. It's a very challenging transition and she's going to stick by it. What always struck me is, is the way you have Vivian Baring commenting on the play that she's in. I think she also from our perspective anyway, I think she's also commenting on the nature of artists and their ability to um, try to describe things that they don't really understand. And especially in Dunn's case, his, his, his uh, you know, the, the metaphysical world and the transition into death, he would certainly have no experience with. He hadn't died yet. Had he? <laughs> he hadn't died before he wrote that poem. And I, I think that there was, in that moment, to me, it, it just strikes me as another commentary on artists, not just the playwright this time, but on Dunn and his awareness and ability to describe a, a, what she is going through in a more accurate way and that he might not have had the tools. He might have needed the punctuation that she gave him. And yet that presumes that she does have that insight at that point which she does not. Right. Right. She well, does yeah. not have a superior insight to John Dunn's. What, what she needs to do is let go of John Dunn. I mean, what must it be like if you're wearing armor, chain mail, right? Or if you're a hockey player and you're wearing all those pads, what must the moment be like when you take that off? Yeah. Right? When you don't need to be shielded anymore. You don't need to be protected. You're not afraid of what's coming, right? Well, how do your arms feel when you take off the, the, the pieces of metal that have been keeping you safe? But she must feel the same. I mean, that, well, that's keeping you safe in the material world, but she must be feeling the same fears that Dunn is trying to express about the life hereafter, about the, the nature of damnation, whether she deserves 
redemption and deserves paradise or deserves whatever awaits her on the on the other side. She has to be afraid of, of that as well. Yeah. I'm not sure that the torments of hell are a, a motivator for are, are a, a vivid reality for her as they would have been for him. But again, John Dunn is is not the he doesn't get the RBI in this play, right? It's not his play. It's not his play. It's her play. It's her story. And as she grows as a person, she lets go of John Dunn. She, she, John Dunn fades in the play. He doesn't rise to a crescendo. He gets dropped along with her bracelet and her cap and her gowns and her, her truth, her nakedness, her true self is has nothing to do with John Dunn. She's outgrown John Dunn. And we're all sick of John Dunn by the time the play's gone. And Professor Ashford says, I'll recite something by Dunn. And, and <laughs> Professor Barry says, no. And we all say, thank you. <laughs> and we get the runaway bunny. Was there an impetus for that particular book? Um, that's how my Sunday school teacher explained it. Yes. Explained? The, the book itself, and when the play is performed live, she takes the book out of the bag and half the audience just bursts into tears, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. so exhausted by then, so worn down. Um, what sends Professor Baring over the edge is not just the reading of The Runaway Bunny, right? If Professor Ashford just read The Runaway Bunny straight through, okay, it's, it's that Professor Ashford gives a scholarly reading of The Runaway Bunny in a way that only a professor of 17th century poetry could do. Sure. And it's, it's, it's funny when she says it, right? When she says copyright 1942, that's very scholarly. That's funny. Yeah. And then she says, look, a little allegory of the soul. And that's, that's, that's funny. But that's, that's only something a professor of 17th century poetry would say. And so the audience laughs. So that's a silly thing to say. And then as the book goes on, they say, whoa, that is what it is. It is an allegory of the soul. Where did you find that? What, what took you to that book, to the Runaway Bunny specifically? I, rem- I remembered that little gloss on it, that scholarly reading from Sunday school. And it's funny because the, the play has been translated into every language you could think of, and they all they use the Runaway Bunny. So it, it's that book is not known all over the world, but they don't substitute a children's book of their own language, they have to use the runaway bunny. So they have to use John Dunn and they have to use the runaway bunny. You know, I have to, I have to tell you, Maggie, we've, we had, well, like I said, we buzz after all our shows. We had a number of audiences suggest that, that E.M. Ashford actually is appearing as an angel in that moment. And, and mm-hmm. Baring has been dead for some time. And this is a, a you know, an apparition mm-hmm. uh, appearing to her. You're nodding as if that's not, um, that's not unusual. Um, I have been asked that before or that she's a hallucination. That, that Professor Baring is on morphine and everything. Um, if I had wanted to make that the case, I could have very easily done that as a writer. I could have said, woo-woo music or, or fog. Right. right? <laughs> so it would, have been, it would have been easy as anything to make sure that it was. It never occurred to me that it would be, but I'm just fascinated that people see that. Oh, yeah, that comes up for debate in my class all the time. And I think because uh, uh, students are attracted to the fantastical, they love the idea that she's an angel or a ghost, right? Just because of, of that um, inclination. Yeah. Uh, what if it were not hard to tell the difference? See, that's a great point as well. And, and would it matter? Was, would one be more impactful than the other? I, that was always my stance is that it didn't really matter because you make a point in the play that she exits. There's some time. And then Jason enters immediately after that. So they don't really cross paths. You don't really get the idea that they bump into each other, see each other. And so there, there is that implication. We made it kind of ambiguous in our production so that they wouldn't cross paths. So people could have their own experience. Sure. exactly. And then even in the, uh, we had watched the Mike Nichols version and I, 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 you know, I've watched it several times and I'm always they don't show many uh, hospital workers in the background. So I don't know if he was even uh, trying to suggest that himself. But I, but I really I'm, I'm curious about your your um, contention now that th- there is no real difference between one or the other. One wouldn't have a, 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 a harder, harsher impact, you think? 
Not necessarily. I mean, have you ever had somebody help you change a flat tire in the middle of the night in the rain? I mean, you know, that could be angels unawares. That's the phrase. Right? Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, that's fair. And I guess I've, I've also woken from dreams with a, a, a very real sense of loss of the person that I've just been dreaming about knowing that I'll never see them again. So I think those are uh, similar impacts. I see that. I have one more question. Uh, from a previous conversation, this is, uh, uh, we had talked about... I just want to say to our listeners that we talk all the time. <laughs> we are like this. <laughs> was it just last night we had a talk? That, that was us. This is what we do. Uh, I. I just love how uh, clever you are and also how sweet you are. And was it intentional to take this very, uh, now, as I mentioned before, I'm kind of intimidated by the word scholar, right? I don't, I don't really see myself as a scholar. I do. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, But I noticed in the, in the play, you talk about uh, all of this medical jargon and then you talk about 17th century done poetry and it's it's like a metaphysical conceit you take two um ideas that have nothing to do with each other and you put them in a play and was that intentional like a metaphysical conceit yeah it is a metaphysical conceit yeah it's it's um it's it's far-fetched it's an itchy outbreak of far-fetched wit is what it is yes um but a lot of a lot of things have two things in them that you don't see them as being connected. Um, what it meant for me was hours and hours doing research. Just it just took forever to even be able to read articles, scholarly articles on seventeenth century poetry. The scholarly articles themselves are so difficult, so that took forever. And the article that's cited in the play from the May nineteen ninety nine. 1989 modern philology is an actual article and the scholars who are mentioned in the play are actual scholars so that is very fun so um these these two ideas yeah um johnson said criticizing dot that that heterogeneous ideas are yoked violently together that they don't belong together and they're forced together um a heavenly lethean flood in, in poisonous minerals what is that that's ridiculous Right. Uh-huh. That is ridiculous. That whole sonnet is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have anything to offer anybody. It's just too clever by half. And and so wit has elements of that. But gradually, I mean, wit is going somewhere. It's, it starts out like that and then it gradually gets over itself. It, it softens. Do any so you had mentioned to us that you've you tend to see the play now two three times a year sometimes just as as it's available and 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 you offer yourself for discussions and and work have there been performances that really stuck out to you or, or performances productions that have that have really um, made their mark and left an impression on you yeah every everyone that I see there's something about it that oh that's cool or I mean, I'm just I really do I get caught up in it every time I see it. I I plan to be critical and aloof and to be out of it, to watch it happening as a spectator. And and I end up getting caught up in it. And that always happens to me. And that's very fun for a playwright because you you can sit in the audience and nobody knows you're there. They just assume that you're dead, right? That's the best thing. And so you go and you can sit in the audience and, and have the exact experience. They assume that as a playwright, you're dead. The playwright is, uh, of any play is dead. Yes, totally. <laughs> oh, you're ridiculous. That's that's so funny. Because you're right. It's absolutely true. All yeah. playwrights are dead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would love to be you going to your own play and be sitting next to somebody as they're talking about the play. Ooh, that that's delightful. What I've never seen, what I have never ever seen, uh-huh. a group of actors, even even a staged reading, even a script in hand reading, I've never seen anybody do anything with the play that was not absolutely sincere and mm-hmm. honest. I've never seen any gimmicks, any. Um, auteur, you know, interpretation, the car on the stage and a hostage situation stuff. The people who want to do this play want to do that serious work. And so I've never, I've never, ever been um, surprised in a, in a disappointing way. That, that just speaks to the quality of the writing. And we have to tell you, it is absolutely one of our 
favorite plays of all time. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us. We've gone a little bit over time. You promised us a, a half an hour. We've taken so much more of your time than is, than is necessary. Maggie, thank you so much for doing this and for and for joining us. And, uh, and we'll talk tomorrow. Okay, great. I'll be sitting here. Wow, that went really, I think that went really well. I think so too. You know, I, I'm, I was struck by, I, 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 I keep forgetting her relationship to, the, the care of Vivian Barry's relationship to Maggie Edson. You know, that the Baring and Edson kind of have a conversation about the course of the play. And it, it's nice to, to hear her talk about that a little bit. But. It was so interesting when she was saying that uh, Vivian is upset with the playwright. Because I, and I have to be completely honest, I thought it was Vivian trying to convince the audience about her perspective to, to get her on her side, uh, uh, to get her on her team. Not that she was upset with the playwright. So when she said that in the interview, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I think we missed the mark of that. Well, no, I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think we missed the mark because I think she does. She does in the play say, um, I would prefer that a play written about me be done in. And she, you know, she talks about a different style. Yes. A, a different look and a whole different feel. So there is some resentment about what, what she's been going through. And I. I I don't think she's trying to turn the audience against the playwright. I, I, she has to be getting the audiences. She has to be trying to bring the audience to her side. No, no, I wasn't saying to turn them against the playwright. I was saying to form an alliance with the audience so that the audience understands Vivian Barron's perspective. Right, but isn't that the same thing? If, if she's, if she, if Barron puts herself in opposition to the playwright and she's trying to form an, an allegiance with the audience, mm-hmm. wouldn't that be in opposition to the playwright? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I'm just saying. But I, I, and, and it's funny, you know, I was I was struck too um, by Maggie's dismissal of of Dunn and uh, and and that that know, that ridiculous poem that ridiculous poem poison <laughs> that, yeah, that, it means nothing. It, yeah, it's so confusing. Like, what does that mean? And uh, and and she's you, and she's right. I mean, the lecture that that Baring gives about that poem kind of skirts around the real meaning of of it, and it, it she makes it very personal when she talks about. Um, the, just the fear of, of what the next step of life after death might be for her. I just make assumptions that, you know, when you're that intellectual, that you, you're telling the truth. And that's she's pointing out that that's not the case. Right. You know, uh, and Vivian Baring lives that way in her own life. Like, well, I'm just going to use knowledge as a shield. I'm smart. I'm tough. And this is my truth. Right. And, and I'm right. And that ends up not working out for her either. One thing that I do think that we may have uh, um, not quite realized uh, in our production that, that Maggie has pointed out is that I, I really feel like Maggie thinks that Vivian Baring's redemption and sort of totality as a human doesn't come until the last five seconds or so of the play. And I feel like they're really, that it really does start to happen with Susie and um, her, 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 that line we talked about, I was a teacher, you know, that very simple suggestion that, that being a teacher is much more of a human quality than being a scholar or a professor or a lecturer. Well, I think there's interesting <clears throat> incremental shifts. Oh right? yeah. She grows slowly. Yeah. Yes. It's, uh, and then that's her, her big moment there. Uh, so, uh, but she had mentioned in a previous conversation how, when she's talking about semicolon and exclamation point, when she uses that, that uh, second set of punctuation, and then she says, I'm sorry, that she says that that, that's a false ending. And so we think that the play is going to end at that moment. And, uh, so she uses all, uh, you know, uh, Vivian Baring uses all these strategies that she's used to using, you know. Uh, intellect and her her knowledge analysis analysis she uses all of those things as a strategy to to show that she's won and and it doesn't end up working out for her and the real culmination is that very last moment when she strips off all of her clothes and she just goes from life death to the afterlife and that is the the true pure ending yeah no i think so i i I think they're right i really enjoy uh, chatting with her, she is. It's a shame that that you know we haven't filmed these podcasts because I think um, I think people would really enjoy the just the expressions 
that she well she's really a performer herself she is I, yeah. I mean, she did she didn't want to cop to being a theater person yes but uh she clearly is one and just that that her the her expressionful faces was remarkable and i i'm gonna let the, the cat out of the bag too and also in a previous conversation she had mentioned that even though uh she doesn't necessarily feel that it's the right time in her life that she would have liked to have, have maybe played vivian herself I, Do you yeah. think you think so? I well, she kind she hinted at that. I don't know that she was completely uh, sold on. Oh, maybe on the it's idea. me wanting her to play Vivian well, because she, I like her so much. Well, what she had said, okay. we, we did, we had had we we had spent some time talking with Maggie before, and in a previous conversation, she talked about um, making the character, um, you know, in her in her late forties, and and thinking, oh well, that that's so old because when she wrote the play, you know, she was in her late twenties, thirty years old, whatever. And it, she, it was it was so old, and now she's looking at it as a as a fifty nine year old woman, and thinking, well, maybe I should have made her older. But no, Vivian is is perfect. I think where she is. But I, I have to say, um, if I were um, going to do, you know, an, the the just the ultimate production of this show, I think I would approach <laughs> Maggie Edson about playing Vivian Barron. I, I really would put in a pretty hard court press to try and can you imagine a rehearsal what that would be like like <laughs> you and i like having no no she'd be like no this is what this moment is about and we'd be like yeah but <laughs> i don't know i don't know that would be- i don't know i don't know maggie have you thought about this <laughs> have yeah. you maybe thought about this other thing um, yeah I don't know. that would be fun And that's episode four, our final chat about our 2017 production of Margaret Edson's Wit. But it's certainly not the end of the conversation. For our next three episodes, Anne-Marie and I will be discussing our 2019 production of Bess Wool's Small Mouth Sounds, a mostly silent play that challenged not only performers and its director, but audiences as well. We'll be talking with actors and designers and, with any luck a special guest or two. If you enjoy these conversations, please take a moment to subscribe. We plan to continue these podcasts through the pandemic and even hope to make it a regular part of our seasonal offerings as well once everything approaches some semblance of normalcy. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for upcoming episodes, drop us an email at behindthebuzz at apublicfit.org. Your suggestions will help guide us as we continue to examine our work, continuing the unending conversation about the arts, theater, and our own lives. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public fit theater company in association with Giant Leap Industries, Adam Paul, director. A production of Giant Leap Industries.